I just want to let you know uh, this morning that we believe lies. We all believe a very specific lie. We may not say it, we may not realize it, but we do believe this lie. The most heinous and destructive lies that we could ever believe because it can control everything that we believe. And so today I'm going to tell you the biggest lie that has ever been told and that we have believed in some fashion. I never understood what it meant to live. To see stars or grass was always something so average, so mundane, and so still. Now I would do anything to see anything still or be still, for that matter. The hidden despot rulers wanted a submissive population, easily directed by subliminal messaging. They littered the online world with directions and distractions that spoke only to our subconscious minds to see who followed, feeding on our insecurities like a parasite. As the world grew more narcissistic, so did the movies, their dark fantasies inoculating the population against the real-world violence and depravity on the news. They touted a dialogue that taught the population that evil was good and good was evil. This was a normal part of life. They wanted us to believe there was nothing we could do about it. it. Kept us docile as the ideological bombs dropped before our eyes as if coming from foreign lands. The only way out was to stop glamorizing the evil, stop taking in the lies as if we are drowning victims gasping for fresh air. We need to show it as it really is. Horrifying, raw, wretched, controlled. There is a murmur of a benevolent champion whose charge into the world sets the heads of the elite on fire. He marshals the dispossessed into battle, forging a path lit with the wisdom of ages past. It is said that he changes everything from dark to light as though infected by an illuminated stain from the sun. He disrupts. We need more of him. Where is he? Who is he? We need his disruption. Hey everyone, glad you could join us in this series we're doing called Disruption. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 17. It's kind of an anchor point for us uh, for this message. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. If you don't know where the book of 1 John is in the beginning of your Bible, people put a table of contents there and they worked really hard on it. So you go ahead and use it to get yourself over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Here's what it says. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together, and I pray, Jesus, that as we are looking into your word and we're seeing 
very specific patterns that relate to lies and truth that our eyes and our hearts and our ears would be open to what you have for us today. And so, Lord God, would we listen? And only the things that are of you, Lord, are the things that we would remember uh, because we truly desire to follow you rather than ourselves. In your name I pray. Amen. So I just want to let you know uh, this morning that we believe lies. All of us. We all believe a very specific lie. And we may not say it, we may not realize it, but we do believe this particular lie. Or at least we've bought into the implications of the lie. The most heinous and destructive lies that we could ever believe because it can control everything that we believe. And it shows itself in our desires. It shows itself in our thoughts and even in our actions. And so today I'm going to tell you the biggest lie that has ever been told and that we have believed in some fashion. And this lie showcases itself in two very common modern statements. And the first statement would be this. This is my truth. Well, what are you all about? What drives you? All right, because that's what we're talking about when we're saying this is my truth. It's really talking about the things that drive us, the things that are personal to us that we then say define us in some way. So what is it? What, what is it that drives you? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Prestige? Family? Fun? Hobbies? Uh, education? Is it pleasure? Is it social activism? What is your truth? Now, the reason I ask what is your truth is that our truth is usually wrapped up in us. Hence the name, your truth. We think about, when we think about it, we can usually find the weaved thread of self-centeredness throughout the fabric of the yarn that would tell the tale of our lives. We have ultimately believed a lie that has governed much of our lives, has entrapped us, and held us hostage to disappointment, to frustration, and to selfishness. What is your truth? is all about you. Another phrase that's a pretty modern phrase is this one, and, and we jokingly say it from time to time, but a lot of people live by it, and it is, you do you. You do you. Seems like a very lazy sentence. <laughs> but you do you. Now look, I don't want to be disparaging between the, uh, about the idea of us being unique. There's something beautiful and wonderful about that. But the notion of you do you is the idea that you can do whatever you want if it is consistent with what makes you identifiably you and makes you happy. You do you is all about you. What is your truth is all about you. So I'm guessing it doesn't come as a surprise that the greatest lie that we have ever believed is that it is all about us. That is the greatest lie that we have ever believed, that it's all about us. And it is a norm. This is a normal thing that we all grow accustomed to, and this norm needs to be disrupted. Now, you might ask, Rob, what's wrong with this thing? Well, why does it need to be disrupted? Well, this lie will govern every area of our lives and will ultimately lead us down roads we never thought we would go and to do things that we never thought we would do. We'll believe things that distort our sense of reality and specifically within our faith, we're going to reduce God to a vending machine in the sky because it's all about us. And we'll become more and more self-centered and at some point, sacrifice relationships on the altar of self. 
That's a big deal. This lie that we believe is a lie that I truly believe is straight from the pit because it really does make me the center of the universe. And if I'm the center of the universe, others don't matter as much. So we're going to walk through uh, this passage that we read already, and we're going to, it's going to take us into other passages. And, and I think it's important at this point that we note that there is a rule of biblical interpretation that we need to follow in this case. And that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. That's a rule of interpretation. It's talking about the consistency that we need to find within the message of the Bible. The scripture not only interprets itself, but I want to suggest to you that it also interprets us. As we read and hear the scriptures, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and then points us to Jesus so that we can be confronted by the gospel. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm oh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so this is what scripture does for us. So we're going to walk forward into this. And, uh, and, and I think it's important that we remember that there is this lie that is present in our lives, in our world. And I want to suggest to you that it's probably been present from the beginning. And we're going to investigate that this morning. And so uh, what we understand then is that the intention of the heart, uh, John describes the lie that shows the relationship to the Father. And he shows its relationship to the Father. Here's what I mean. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, talking about uh, verses 15 to 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so John immediately begins to describe the tension between the love of the world and the love of God, right? And so if you love the world, then the love of God is not, in fact, actually in you. And when we talk about the idea of loving the world, this is not the idea of desiring good for the world. This is the idea of buying into the lies of the world and living our lives in, in alignment with the world rather than in alignment with the Father. And he goes on and he says, for all that is in the world, and then he describes it. He says, the desires of the flesh or the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from this world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so there's this interesting uh, dynamic taking place in this passage. You have on one hand, do not love the world or the things of the world. And then it, it has this corresponding opposite messaging where it says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So if you love the world, you don't love the Father. And then he goes on and he says, and the, the things of the world are not of the Father. Okay, so the things that are of the Father are not the things of the world. So what are the things of the world? And he says, the things of the world are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then he goes further and he talks about this idea of the things of the world being temporary. He says, the world is passing away with its desires. And it, again, corresponds with an opposite statement. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the world is temporary. God is forever. The things of the world are not the things of God. The Loving of the world is not loving God. And so you got this incredible messaging that's taking place where we now have to make a decision about where we land. Do we land with the world or do we land with God? This is the lie. Everything 
we that this thing describes is that it is from us, it is through us, and it is for us. And, and so when we're looking at a passage like this, I'm like, okay, so if this is the language that's being used here, if it's about the world, then I have to ask the question in terms of understanding the passage, was it always this way? Were these always the things of the world? And in doing so, I'm forced, I'm compelled actually, to go all the way back to the beginning. Because we know that the world is present in the beginning. And so when you go to the beginning, and we start looking at the first place that this lie was told and experienced, it takes us to Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Now, just to give you some context, up until this point, up until the book of Genesis chapter 3, uh, you have the creation account, you have uh, Eve being brought to Adam, and all these things were very good. And then we go on further, and in Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, you have the serpent, which, which is the understanding is that this would be the devil, this would be Satan. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and presents them with an alternative to what God would have for them. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the thing that he's talking about eating is this fruit uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they were told not to eat from. So, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So I want to show you something that I think is really, really cool. If we believe from 1 John chapter 2 that there is this idea of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that these are what the world offers, do we see that in verses 5 and 6 of the book of Genesis chapter 3? And I want to suggest to you that you do. You talk about the lust of the flesh. So the lust of the flesh is the stuff that is literally exactly what it sounds like. The things that we crave on a fleshly uh, plane, these are the things like, are, are we hungry? Are we, you know, like that kind of stuff. It's that physical stuff. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, when you eat. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, good for food. And these are parallels that align with lust of the flesh. And so just because lust of the flesh is there doesn't mean that the rest are there. So let's take a look at this further. The lust of the eyes. Okay, well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, it says, your eyes will be open. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, pleasing to the eyes. That sounds interesting to me. Is there the pride of life? Well, yeah. In Genesis 3, chapter, uh, Genesis 3, 5, it says, knowing good from evil. In Genesis 3, 6, gaining wisdom. So what we find right in the beginning that John talks about in 1 John is that there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is the original temptation of man. This is the original sin dialogue that we find in this chapter. And what we learn from it, when you distill it down to a basic premise, what you find is that this lie is that it's all about us, and that lie hasn't changed. 
We still believe it's all about us. Adam and Eve were there and they bought into the lie of it being all about them, that they need to be number one, that it's, it's pleasing to them. And I want to offer you is that in this passage, we find what we call the first Adam, which is the description of, of course, Adam, Adam and Eve. And in this first Adam, when confronted with this lie, when confronted with the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, this first Adam gave into the lie, believed the lie as truth, and it began to then govern his life. But if there's a first Adam, then we have to also have to consider that there probably was a second Adam. And so when we continue looking forward into the scriptures and we look at the life of Jesus, who is called the second Adam, what we find is that Jesus disrupts this lie with truth. And this is a beautiful picture. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 13. Now, the context of this is that Jesus had just finished being baptized, and we heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him, with him I am well pleased. And we find at this point that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Catch that? Second Adam, present with the devil, being tempted. So what we find now is a parallel to that creation account or that first dialogue regarding the temptation and the things of the world. And then it says here, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. That's the contest. Jesus was hungry, and the devil comes in, and we find that first thing that the world offers. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, are you ready? Tell this stone to become what? Bread. It's the lust of the flesh. Tell the stone to become bread. And instead of doing so, Jesus, being the disruptor of the lie and bringing in truth, says this, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but by the very word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So did he need bread? Well, sure. But he offers truth in the face of the lie of the lust of the flesh. Jesus didn't choose himself, he chose the Father. The story carries on. It says, the devil led him to a high place and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. That's an interesting statement even just there. In an instant showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their, ter- all their authority and splendor. Listen, it's been given to me, he says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all Yours And so his eyes are seeing all the splendor of the world, all the authority that he could be given. Guys, this is the lust of the eyes. And Jesus' response to that lie of this being all about him in terms of that selfishness, Jesus answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil tries again. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's the pride of life. He's appealing to ego and to pride. And Jesus answers him, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had finished all his temptations, he left him for a more opportune time. Now, I want you to notice something. There's something critical taking place in this passage. With every single one of these temptations, with every single one of these things that the world offers, Jesus removes the focus from him and places it on the Father. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone in relationship to the lust of the flesh. In relationship to the lust of the eyes, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In relationship to the pride of life, Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So every single time the lie of the world comes forward, the lust of the flesh, the the lust of the eye, the pride of life, Jesus' answer to all of these things was to point people to the Father. And in essence saying that he understands that the biggest lie he ever told was that it was all about us. He understood that. But the truth that he's bringing in is that the greatest truth that has ever been told is that it's all about him. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says this, For from him and through him and for him all things, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You catch that? Nowhere in there is there anything about us. And as a matter of fact, if there is something about us in this text, is that we are for him. That we're for him. We are his possession. We are his creation, not the other way around. And so the greatest truth ever told is that it's all about Jesus. And the pattern of the world that we live in is that it's all about feeling pleasure, chasing achievement, knowing more, and all of these things lead to emptiness and they cause us to constantly chase the carrot, the carrot of the lie that's set out in front of us. I mean, think about your life for a moment. Is it not about feeling pleasure, much of it? Whatever that pleasure is derived from? Is it not about chasing achievement? If I just get that better job, get that promotion, if I'm just a better uh, wife or husband or mom or, or, or friend or any of these things, if I just chase the achievement, if it's just about knowing more, the disruption that Jesus offers reorients us towards his truth. Look, Romans 12, 2. And this is beautiful because we understand that the pattern of the world in terms of what the world offers us is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, here's what it says. You ready? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so our old way of thinking is that it's all about us. It's about my flesh. It's about the the eyes. It's about the pride of life. And he's saying here, no, listen, we need to reorient this. We need to disrupt that lie, bring in truth, and to cause us to no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then he says, ready? Then you will be able... Then you will, sorry, uh, be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing perfect will. And so that's the disruption. The disruption is that when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we will know 
the will of God, which offers us something good in place of pleasures. It's not that we shouldn't feel good about things in life. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy this life. I mean, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. But we got to remember, we got to allow God to define what life to the fullest means. And it's not about our pleasures. And so he offers us something good in place of our pleasures. He offers something pleasing rather than the disappointment of chasing the achievements that ultimately end up empty. We all know that. You know, we achieve certain things in life, and then when we get them, we're like, huh, I need more. And so we set a new goal, and then a new goal, and then a new goal. And the problem is, is that when these goals, right, because goals aren't bad, but when these goals are centered on us and on what the world offers us and on that lie that we buy into, that it's all about us, then every single one of those goals will leave us empty and craving maybe a new goal so that we feel like we're pursuing something. And so Jesus offers us a sense of contentment. It's pleasing in the place of this achievement. And he offers us something perfect rather than a fallible, self-driven knowledge. You catch that? So we look at this, his good, pleasing, perfect will, And what do we desire? Well, we desire good things over pleasures. We desire this pleasing uh, contentment over the idea of chasing achievements. We we desire perfect knowledge over fallible, self-driven knowledge. So, what do we do? Well, we stop living as if the temporary is eternal. That's key. Look, the lie that the devil was offering both in the garden and with Jesus were all temporary things. I mean, think about it for a second. All the things that Jesus was offered from from Satan were temporary. All the kingdoms of the world are temporary. All of these things are going to go away. All of it. Your job is going to go away. Your money is going to go away. Your house is going to go away. Vacations are going to go away. All the goals and achievements that we desire for personal gratification are going to go away. We need to stop living as if the temporary is eternal. Take a step back and look at the things that have eternal value and invest our spaces or our energies into those spaces. And the other thing is this, is that, so not only do we need to stop living as if the temporary is eternal, we also got to stop living as if the immediate is ultimate. The immediate is not ultimate. And the immediate, as we talked about in our first message on fatigue, is this idea that it's just it's going to exhaust us if we're constantly just keep focusing on the immediate. But not only that, in this, in this idea of leaning into truth, truth has an eternal consequence. It has an eternal value. And so we need to stop thinking about the immediate being ultimate and allow the eternal to be ultimate. And we're called to live like Jesus. And this is how Jesus lived. And Jesus says that he came and he wants to do the will of his Father. He only does the things that the Father wills him to do. That's an eternal perspective. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, listen, here's what it says. And this is critical to all of us in terms of something to evaluate in our own lives. He says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Jesus had an eternal perspective. Jesus was a servant to all. Jesus was one who communicated truth. And Jesus did not buy 
the lie. He didn't. And neither should we. And he disrupts the lie by showing us the truth. And so if we shift our lives towards the truth, we will be more content and we will strive less. It's true. We're going to strive less. It's going to be less about personal achievement and more about connecting with the Father. The value of relationships around us will be more, will be valued higher. We're just going to value them more because we'll recognize that these are the things that are more important. It is more important, men, for you to be a great husband and a great dad if you are those things than it is for you to get the accolades at work. Moms, if you're here and you're a mom and you're a wife, it is far more important for you to be a godly person than it is for you to be run ragged by your role as a wife and as a mom. If you're single, it is far more important for you to be a person who chases after the eternal than the temporary because the temporary will shipwreck you every time. And it'll be a thing that you're pursuing to gain some kind of satisfaction and contentment in life. And it will fall flat every single time because it cannot offer what it promises you. And the reason is that it's a lie. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. For every single person experiencing those things, it's all a lie. It's not about us. And to that end, if we live our lives towards this truth, then it's going to take the focus off of our selfishness and desire, and, and it will create it within us a desire to serve others. So it'll take the focus off of our selfishness and create within us a desire to serve others, which is exactly what we're called into. Do not consider yourself more highly than you ought, and consider the needs of others as more valuable than your own. It's not that you don't meet the needs that you have in life. It's just that you value others highly. We serve people, do good to all, especially to those in the family of faith. And so the whole language of Scripture is that it forces us to, well, look at these contradicting statements. Life is either all about me or it's all about serving. It's all about not me. And as we continue, and we, again, we will help others find that truth as well. Now imagine what life would be like if everyone believed the truth that it's not about us, it's all about Jesus. And because it's all about Jesus, we want to live life like Jesus lived life. And Jesus served everybody. He did not consider his own personhood, being God, as something to grab hold of. He took on the form of a servant. He became others-focused. And that's where we need to land. Others-focused. And so here's what we're left with. Here's our, our way forward, because I really do believe that we got a decision we need to make here. Because every single one of us, myself included, get caught up in this trap of this lie that the world offers, that it's all about me. It's all about us. It's this lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And in the context of that, we have Jesus showing us that, no, that's not the way to live. This is the way to live. You are number, not number one. The Father is where we need to direct our attention. Jesus is, in fact, number one, because it is through Him, for Him, to Him, that all things exist and that we're made. And so we have a decision to make. And it's not that different than the decision that Israel had to make back in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. 
The invitation to restore Israel's commitment to the covenant relationship with the Lord is the context. And Joshua says this to the Israelites. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestor, sorry, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Here's the question. Are you going to buy into this ultimate lie that has been there from the beginning? In terms of what the world offers, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Or are you going to choose the truth? The truth that Jesus disrupts. That when faced with those lies, he points everybody to the Father. Everyone to the Father. So, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve yourself by buying into the lies of the world? Or will you serve the one for whom you've been created? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And Lord, this is a tough message for us because we recognize that we're forced to evaluate ourselves in the context of Scripture. And we realize, Lord, that you know, we've really been living life for ourselves. And so, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the areas of our lives that we need to surrender to you? That we would take a look at this whole idea of disruption and recognize that you are the ultimate disruption to the lies and to all these other things that we're experiencing in life. And that when we choose you, when we follow you, we have freedom from the things that we have in this life. And so, Jesus, would you help me to choose you more than me, that I will become less so that you become more. And will you help everyone who's taken this in to do the same? We will become less so that you become more. We will not buy the lie. We will lean into that disruption of truth. In your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.